Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, December 5th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, we have Truthfids here with us to discuss the next points. And, and I'm saying points because we're, we're not even through an entire proof as you have them organized. The next points in his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. And while this review of the meanings of certain words does not explicitly prove the race of the Israelites, it does show that word meanings were obfuscated so as to distort the many other evidences that the message of Christ and his apostles and prophets is solely intended for white Europeans. And we've presented plenty of evidence at, in, in relation to that. Once we understand how these words have been misinterpreted and, and mistranslated in scriptures, that then it's easy to see through those words to understand that the scripture is all about race. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we can continue today with the mistranslations. And what, what, as you said, what you're going to keep finding is that the Jews push the modern translations and then go back in time and history and push that they meant the same things back then. Just like today, how they say, um, you know, if you go to Egypt, that it's full of um, sand niggers. Well, it must have been like that 3,000 years ago. Or the same with Arabs and, and many of the Southern European countries. It must have always been like that. And they do the same thing with this next word we're going to come to, which is generation, which had a slightly different meaning a few centuries ago. Uh, you know, in the King James Version, the the general English language they used back then. And it doesn't mean what we generally say now, which is the generation, the, how would you say, the the group of people alive at a given time, you know, the generation, it actually means race, right, Bill? Absolutely. This word generation does mean race. And, and if, if we sit and think about it, a generation is something that is generated. And how are people generated? And, and, and even if it refers to all the people alive at one time, as we shall see, it really cannot be separated from, from the basic idea that races are generated when... when when nations grow, families grow into nations and, and nations become mighty and powerful. It, it's that Latin word nation, that, that word nation comes from the Latin word nas, natio and natio comes from the word natus, which means birth. The, the ideas of nation and ethnos or ethnicity, right? That we get our word ethnicity from ethnos is nation in Greek. Um, there's several different ways to say nation in Latin, as we discussed last week. Um, gentilis actually means to refer to somebody of the same race, somebody of, of a related race or, or a related kindred. So 
these ideas of race cannot be separated from our language, and they can't be separated from the language of the Bible, except for these false ideas we have of the meanings of words. A generation, something which is generated just because there are there, there are many races of people alive right now at one time on the globe or, or planet or whatever you want to call it, that doesn't mean that they are all the same generation because they had different origins. If you don't have a common origin, you can't be part of the same generation because you were not generated from the same source. What we are so dumbed down as to the meanings of our terms, it, it's it, that we can't understand the scripture. Even in the King James and, English of 1611, generation did not mean what we think it means today. World did not mean what we think it means today. And, and even nation, the idea of a nation today in the, in the minds of most people is simply a political unit which is controlled by a certain government. It, it's it's a, a geographical demarcation operating under a given political unit or, or political paradigm, if you will, that, that's controlled by a particular government, and they think that's a nation no matter who lives there. But that's not true. That's not properly a nation. A, a nation is a group of people of a homogenous race that happen to live together. And, and that's something I really didn't get into when we discussed the word nation last week. The Greeks had a word for people, laos, and a, a laos was used of a certain people, all of the same race or origin. And if there were multiple people of multiple races, the writers of the New Testament would not call them a laos. They would call them tone ethnone, the nations, different races of people mixed together is what we had as from their worldview in Judea and in Greece where the apostles were traveling. And that's because that word genea or race in Greek, that word had a narrower meaning as we're about to get into it, that word had a narrower meaning than it does today, where a genea was used, that word race was used of a particular family within a nation quite often. But concerning the 12 tribes of Israel, they really started off as one family. So all their pure descendants are still the same family, even if, after 2,000 years, they had developed into many nations. So to the Greeks, a Ganea could mean an entire race, like the entire race of the Dorians, even though they lived in diverse places, or the entire race of the Ionians, or it could mean just a family within a race. So at the beginning, the children of Israel were just one family within a race. And then 2,000 years later, that they were many nations of people 
that we're still part of the same original family. So, so the idea of what a race is can change over time only if it's the same people that are being spoken of it, 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 when a particular race is mentioned. You can't become part of another race. You can't become a, a, a Hutu or a Mandingo just because you've moved to Africa. That's not the way life works. That's not the way reality is. So we have these crazy ideas of nation now that, that people of diverse races can belong to the same nation. And that's not reality. That's an empire. That's not a nation. And also um, the word gene, you know, G-E-N-E, the, the, the base word of generation, it clearly indicates, you, you know, the word we derive from that, genes. The fact that when you uh, generate, you know, offspring, they carry on your genes, that they are the same race, right? Uh, everything you've just been saying. And just to add on that, just because, some, um, you know, some nigger believes in Jesus, he doesn't suddenly magically gain your genes or become your race. You're still a separate race. You, as you said, that's not reality, right? Right. It's absolutely not. I, I mean... If you want to believe that Yahweh God created nations and races, plural, and you mix those races, which we don't believe he really created the other races, but that's immaterial. If you mix those races, then you're creating something that Yahweh God didn't create. So you're corrupting his creation, just like if you tried to mix tomatoes and potatoes into the same hybrid plant. You're corrupting God's creation. You're not going to come out with something good either, but you're corrupting his creation. And, and that's being done all over the world of agriculture and husbandry today. And, and it's also being done with people today. That, that we'll get into probably in our next presentation when we discuss what a bastard is in scripture. We're not going to get quite that far today. In 1 Peter chapter 1, that's where I'd like to start talking about generations and races. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read where Peter addressed his intended readers, and he called them, <clears throat> the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But that word stranger, and, and this is a huge problem with the King James Version and all other modern Bible versions, is they'll take four or five Hebrew words and translate them in the same way in English, or four or five Greek words and translate them in the same way in English. The word stranger is not xenos. Xenos is the Greek word which commonly referred to a stranger or a foreigner. Now, today we have that xenophobia, which is a Jewish psychological word. Fear of other races um, comes from that Greek word xenos. So the Greek word is not allogenes. There was another word, allogenes, which refers specifically to someone of another race in a narrower sense than we use the term race. We use the term race today very generally. The white race, the, the black race, the Latino race, but 
the Greeks used the term a lot more narrowly, as I said, to refer to a particular family within a race, right? Or a particular nation within a race. So this word alogenes is also translated as stranger in Luke chapter 17, but it, ref it, it refers to someone of another race. A xenos, technically, it, it commonly referred to a stranger or foreigner, but if you read the ancient Greek literature, a xenos, and this is the way it's defined in, in certain lexicons, a xenos is a stranger or foreigner who is entitled to certain um, hospitality and privileges in your nation. If um, 20 Zulu warriors marched through the streets of Athens in 500 BC, they'd have been exterminated immediately. They would not have been entitled to hospitality at all. A Zenos was a certain foreigner or stranger that was entitled to hospitality. So it, it's a different culture and a different time than what we have here today in Europe or America. The 20 Zulu warriors would have been seen as invaders in ancient Athens and didn't belong there. This word alogenes means another race. Genes is a race, and, and it comes from that word genea, and the King James Version always translates, almost always translates Ganea as generation. But somebody from another generation is not how the standard lexicons and dictionaries define that word Ganea when they say that it's all the people alive at one time. Then how could somebody be from another Genes? Alo, alos means another, and genes means race. That's Luke chapter 17. That word actually only appears one time in the New Testament, but it also appears in the Greek scriptures in the Septuagint. Rather, in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he addressed his readers as strangers scattered throughout those places in Anatolia, all of those places he wrote to are provinces in Anatolia or districts in Anatolia, he used the word parapidemos. And parapidemos describes someone who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there side by side with the natives. That's a parapidemos. That is, in English, the most proper term I could imagine to describe it, is a sojourner. And that's the problem with the King James Version, is, is that the tra this translation of different words with different meanings into the same English word, stranger, is a significant source of confusion. So the intended recipients of Peter's epistle were people who were not always native to the lands where they were living. They had come from somewhere else. Then later in his epistle, in chapter 2, Peter says of them, of these same people, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, singular priesthood, singular nation, singular 
generation. A peculiar people, singular people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, meaning that they were pagans, they didn't have the scriptures, they weren't practicing the, the religion of the ancient Hebrews, into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, and this is very important, because the denominational churches always take this out of context, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. In the verse which follows, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he again refers to them as sojourners and pilgrims. But if that word, generation, always referred to all of the people alive at any given time, then according to Peter, only the people of that generation were called to be the people of God. There should be no more Christians, right? However, the word translated as generation is genos. And the Greek word genos, or genos, along with another similar word, genea, represents the source from which we get the English terms such as gene, genetic, and genealogy. The word genos is literally, in Greek, a race, a stock, or a family. In order for it to make sense, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, it must be translated as race in modern English, in order for it to make sense in modern English. Since verse 10 as we had cited, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Verse 10 is a prophecy from Hosea, whereby Peter shows the fulfillment of a prophecy in his intended readers, which relates only to the children of Israel. They were the descendants of the children of Israel who were in the migrations and captivities of ancient times, and that is why he also called them sojourners, people who were not living in their original native land. Many times the words genus and genea should have been translated as race instead of generation. But even in the contexts where it should be read as generation, and there are some, as the context is limited to a particular time, the concept of race cannot be removed from the meaning of the word, and it should be interpreted to refer to all of the people of a particular race who are alive at the time in which the context refers. If you were writing a book about the English and you referred to this generation, then a reader could not imagine that you were referring to Italians. The Bible is a book about the race of Adam. It's a book about the people of Israel. The New Testament was to be made with the people of Israel. Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Peter is using language in... 1 Peter chapter 2, which comes straight from Leviticus chapter 19, a chosen 
race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That language is Old Testament language, which only applies to the children of Israel. Peter is not changing the prophets and the law. He's showing the fulfillment of the prophets and the law in the Israelites who were scattered abroad, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the people who were put off by God. And Hosea wrote, ye are not my people. But then it was said to them that in the place where it was said to them, ye are not my people, you shall be the sons of the living God, or you are the sons of the living God, because they were reconciled to God. And only the children of Israel were to be reconciled to God. Yeah, it only makes sense with the Old Testament understanding, right? And I think um, all this modern uh, explanation, it makes no sense. And um, I think it's even turned people away from the Bible who have uh, tried to understand it. And even they realized that it doesn't quite add up, you know, unfortunately. And if they had have had the true explanation, they would have seen that it does make sense, right? Well, right. We can't interpret the Bible through our modern paradigms of understanding where the world is the planet. That wasn't the, tr the case with the ancient Greeks, that the world was the Adamic world or, or the Greek and Roman world in Roman times, but the Greco-Roman world. And, yet, you know, the Romans were not alien to the Greeks. The Greeks knew where the Romans came from. The Greeks knew they came from the Trojans. The Romans commonly spoke Greek. They were a part of a wider Greek culture. When Rome was founded, if you read um, Titus Livius, who is commonly known as Livy, the first century BC Roman historian, explained the origins of Rome, and it's discovered in the pages of Livy that many Dorian Greeks from Corinth had gone to Rome and lived there and became Romans, that when the Romans sought to establish their own laws, they sent for the, to Greece, for the law to Athens, for the laws of Solon. Solon, S-O-L-O-N. Solon was an ancient, um, one of the famous seven sages of ancient Greece, and, and he was seen as a lawgiver by the Greeks, and his laws were used at Athens and became the basis for Roman law, perhaps in five or 600 B.C., so, so you can't really separate, even though the Romans in Latin had peculiar, um, they had a different language, right? And, and a set of peculiar names for the Greek gods and goddesses. They were still the Greek gods and goddesses, and they were still the, the um, same myths that were found in the ancient Greek poets were repeated in Rome in Latin, telling the same stories. So you think that's where they got the concept of a senate and, you know, all that from that Greek lawgiver? Well, well that was the beginning. And, and that was under the Roman re, re, the, um, Republic. That was in, in the formative years of the Roman Republic, when 
the Senate was formed and the monarchs, the, the kings, were pushed aside in favor of rule by the people and, and, and a pattern of the democracy of Athens, a loose pattern. So, so they took the laws of Solon. So, so what I'm trying to say is that you can't really separate Roman culture and Greek culture to a first century AD Greek. The world was the Roman world. That's why, as you said before we even began this podcast, and it was something I, I don't really remember discussing well, well, we're still to, to discuss that word world. I'm sorry. We're going to do it later this evening, I hope. But that word world, where, where Luke wrote that Caesar sent out to tax the whole world, that's not the word cosmos. That's the word oikumene. And the oikumene was the living place of, of the Greeks and Romans. You can't count um, Southern Africa or, or China or, or any other foreign place with foreign people, you cannot count that as part of the oikumene because Caesar sent out to tax the whole oikumene and Caesar didn't tax the black Africans or the Chinese. So it's evident that they were not part of that Roman world. Christ came to save the world, not everybody on the planet, because world has a different meaning in the first century and even in the 16th. And, and we'll get to that. In English, perhaps until recent times, the word generation also means race. And that may well be the meaning in which the King James translators intended for us to understand it when they used it, at least on frequent occasions. In the 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language by Noah Webster, and, and I've only found, I never read Webster's dictionary, original dictionary, but somebody only showed this to us in, in Christagenia chats recently. So this is the, the most natural source because it's one of the best and it's one of the oldest that we have in English. It is the oldest definition in American English that we have for the word generation. So generation, noun, this is Noah Webster, 1828. The act of begetting, procreation as of animals. As I had said, a generation is what is generated. So if tigers beget and procreate and continue to procreate, and there are many, many tigers, when you say this generation, can you imagine that gazelles are counted in with that? Of course not, because now it would be generations, plural. Now there are, are, are different generations in, in the scope of the context, and not just one. Okay. It's how we think about language, and, and we should think about language and the words we're using. Today, words are used so cheaply that they, many words have lost their original meaning and their, their original impact. 
but that doesn't mean that they were lost to the people that wrote these words in the first century or in the 16th century or the 17th century. The first, he, he gives um, six definitions for generation. And we must bear in mind that none of these can be outside of that meaning of the word, the act of begetting or procreation as of animals. And the first definition is production, formation, as the generation of sounds or of curves or equations. Okay, they could be generated because they have an author. So we could use the word of things, right? Two, a single succession in natural descent as the children of the same parents, hence an age. So we see the way Noah Webster understood the word age isn't the way that we understand the term. To him, an age is a, a single succession in natural descent as children of the same parents. That, that's a, another study altogether, that word age. But it didn't always mean what we think it means today. Or, or Noah Webster wouldn't have been able to write that. And he says, thus we say the third, the fourth, or the tenth generation. And he refers to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, in order for us to understand that. That that generation is... These, these successive offspring in stages, which are ages, of the same race of people. Three, the people of the same period or living at the same time. And he gives another example from Scripture. O faithless and perverse generation, Luke chapter 9, verse 41. Now, that's his example. Now, where Christ had said, this in Luke chapter 9. He was not referring to the Romans. He was not referring to people living in faraway lands. Rather, he was referring to the Judeans and not to any other race. So even though the context may refer to the Judeans at that time, it nevertheless only refers to the race of people that were Judeans found in Judea. So continuing with Webster, four, genealogy, a series of children or descendants from the same stock. This is the book of the generations of Adam. That's his example, citing Genesis chapter five, verse one. The generations of Adam are the the descendants, or collectively, the race of Adam. Now, for the last two definitions in his meaning of the word, or in his list of, of the word's meanings, five, a family, a race, or six, progeny, or offspring. So we see the word generation itself means race. But these last two definitions are not less significant simply because they're last. In fact, they are the products of the primary meaning of the term given at the beginning, which is the act of begetting or procreation. 
a generation is something which is generated. And of men and of families of men, races are generated. Whether they be good or evil or genuine or bastards, they're still races. Generations are races. You cannot suck the meaning of race out of the word generation. Where Christ spoke to his adversaries in Luke chapter 11, he was referring to men and to their ancestors, both near and remote, when he said that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. So, in that case, he must have meant race, not generation as we understand the word. That's not what he meant. Because the law of God would not condemn men for crimes that they themselves were not responsible for. But if your ancestors were responsible for a crime, in the scripture, you would ultimately share in the punishment, being the product of your ancestors, being the generation of your ancestors. Going back to Peter's epistle, the aspect of the prophecy which Peter cited in reference to the people of the provinces of Anatolia, which is found at the end of Hosea chapter 1, only pertains to the ten northern tribes of Israel, where it was said, in the place where it will be said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said, you are the sons of the living God. That only pertained to the ten northern provinces of Israel, and not even to the people of Judah or Judea. So that leads us to the next item in our discussion. Should it be Jew, Judah, or Judeans in Scripture? That's another word that's perverted in its meaning and understanding. Yeah, originally um, they claimed only to be the tribe of Judah, and now they, you know, they claim to be all the Israelites, right? And, um, you, you know, they do that all the time, just like um, niggers try to claim that a few uh, ancient historical figures were black and now they claim all history is black, that they, they just keep going and going, claiming everything for themselves. And it's the same with this Jew, right? How could a man who's a Hebrew, Abraham was a Hebrew, how could he have three generations of grandchildren, right, of children, Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons, right? And Jacob had a brother, Esau, and Esau had 14 sons. So that's 26 grandchildren. And then there are the sons of Ishmael. And there are a whole bunch more, and I don't know how many sons Ishmael had, right? It doesn't matter. We have at least 26 grandchildren. Let's say Ishmael had one son. So that's 27 grandchildren, 27 grandsons, great-grandsons, 
that Abraham had, at least. And he had more than that because there was Midian and there was the, the, the other Havilah and the other sons that he had with Keturah. So perhaps Abraham had 50 grandsons, great-grandsons. 50 great-grandsons. Let's say, let's throw that number out there. Judah is only one of them. He's one great-grandson of Abraham. So, the nation and kingdom of Judah evolve over 600 years in Scripture. And eventually, a great number of them are taken away captive by the Assyrians in 700 B.C. And they end up in the cities of the Medes and, and around the Caspian Sea and, and in Bagri, back, Sogdiana, I'm sorry, Bactria and Sogdiana, I almost said Bogdiana, right? Confounding the two words. Bactria and Sogdiana and the other places where the, around the Black Sea and, and Pamphylia and, and, and the southern coast of the Black Sea, the other places where the Assyrians had deported the children of Israel and, and replanted them, right? That's where they were. So a significant portion of Judah is there. And they were never called Jews. And they were never known again as Judah or Israelites in history, in their subsequent history. They lost that identification. Then a significant portion of Judah, what's left of Judah, is taken to Babylon. And some of them never lost their identification. And they continued to live in and around Babylonia all the way down to the Christian period, to the time after Christ. And that's why Peter is found in Babylon. When you read the end of his epistle, Peter explicitly says that he's in Babylon. And he meant that literally. So out of all the people that were taken out of Judah, only 42,000 returned. And this is only one of Abraham's 50 or so great-grandsons. And they maintained the scripture. But how could they claim that Abraham is a Jew? Because they became the Jews. And some of them did become the Jews, even though they mixed with the Edomites and others, other races. They became the Jews. But how could they claim that Abraham was a Jew? Why don't the Midian, Midianites claim that Abraham was a Midianite? Why, why, why don't the Edomites claim that Abraham was an Edomite? Why don't these other descendants of Abraham claim that he was theirs? You can't, none of them, none of those claims are possibly legitimate. Abraham is nothing else other than a Hebrew. And there were many other Hebrews besides Abraham. So this entire Jewish paradigm concerning the Bible is absolutely unreal. Abraham was not a Jew. And Just because some of his remote descendants became known as Jews does not make Abraham a Jew. Any more than Robert the Bruce because he might have some remote descendants in the mountains of North Carolina, you cannot say that Robert the Bruce is a Carolinian or an Appalachian or, or a Southern Baptist. How about that? 
because many of them are probably Southern Baptists. It's, it's an example. You can't do that. There's a lot less space between the, the, the 13th century Scots and modern Southern Americans that descended from the Scotch-Irish. There's a lot fewer centuries between them than there are between Abraham and the Jews. So how could you point to medieval Scots and claim that they were Southern Baptists or claim that they were Alabamans or Floridians? You can't do that. That's crazy. But why do we let the Jews do it concerning Abraham and concerning the other tribes of Israel? Why do we let them do that? Why do we let them get away with that? That is such an... an a false premise. It is such intellectual dishonesty. It's blatant intellectual dishonesty. I don't know if I made that point succinctly enough, but it, it's. I'm just trying to illustrate how ridiculous it is for the Jews to claim that Abraham was a Jew. Yeah, it's so stupid. You think people would challenge it and just say, hang on a minute. You know, okay, there are other inconsistencies, but this one is just ridiculous. How can you claim Abraham and all the other tribes are somehow Jews? Why not Reubenites or uh, tribe of Dan or, you know, Ephraim? Why, why are they all suddenly Jews? It just doesn't make sense. Right. Abraham was a Danan. <laughs> Abraham was a Dane. <laughs> and And that's just as legitimate a claim. So... Modern churchgoers, they accept these lies, and they never challenge them, and they never really think about them. They just accept them because their pastor said so. It's unfortunate that the word Jew even appears in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the appropriate word is Judah or Judahite, meaning somebody of the tribe of Judah. It could refer to a member of the tribe of Judah, and in some contexts, it can include the people of Benjamin or the portion of Levi who were attached to Judah in the divided kingdom. So with that alone, the word Judah begins losing its meaning as a tribal distinction and becoming a mere indication of geography or citizenship. For a Benjamite, a Benjaminite or a Levite who is a, a citizen of the kingdom of Judah to be called a Judahite, to, to be given that general label, we see that the tribal distinction starts to erode into a geographical distinction. But where the word Jew first appears in Scripture, in, in the King James Version of Scripture, It appears in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 16. Now, by the time of 2 Kings chapter 16, Abraham's been dead and buried for 1,200 years when the word Jew first appears in Scripture. 1,200 years after Abraham, the word Jew first appears in Scripture. So how do you account for that, and how does that make Abraham a Jew? It's 1,200, perhaps 1,100 years since Abraham's dead and buried when that word Jew first appears in the King James Version of the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 16, we see that word Jew appear. But the kingdom was divided. The word Jew appears there 
in contradistinction to Israel. The Jews and Israel in 2 Kings chapter 16 are opposed to each other. So they're not one and the same. So even there, where the use of the word Jew is unfortunate, Jews were nevertheless distinguished from Israel and not one and the same. So no Israelite of the northern kingdom was ever called a Jew. And Jews are not Israel. And we could go 900 years after 2 Kings chapter 16 and see the words of Paul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 26 and where Paul of Tarsus had, had said that now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. I am accused of the Jews. So there we see that the Jews are not the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes are not the Jews. It is so plain in, in the faces of these denominational Christians, even in the King James Version, with all of its faults, it is plain right there, 2 Kings 16 and, and Acts chapter 26, that you should be able to go to those two passages and see that Jews are not Israelites and see that Jews are not the 12 tribes. That's the scripture. Why don't denominational Christians obey the scripture? Even the King James Version. So none of those... Israelites of the northern kingdom were ever called Jews. And if they're not Jews, then their father Abraham was not a Jew. Among the Jews in the later period, the period of the New Testament, were, as we read throughout the New Testament, a generation or a race of vipers. That's in Matthew chapters 3, 12, 23. It's in Luke chapters 3 and 11. It's in John chapter 8. Among the Jews were serpents and scorpions, Luke chapter 10. Among the Jews, Christ had contrasted the children of this world and the children of light in Luke chapter 16. Among the Jews were thorns and thistles, contrasted with grapes and figs in Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6. Among the Jews were wolves and sheep. Matthew chapters 7, 10, Luke 10, John 10. Among the Jews were descendants of Cain, described as being a race, a Ganea, in Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 11. But among all nations, there were only sheep and goats, Matthew chapter 25. The goat throughout history has also often been a symbol for the devil. How could this be if the Jews were all Israelites and if all Israel was promised salvation because the goats are going to the lake of fire? They're not being saved. The first problem to overcome is that term Jew. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and 11 of the 12 patriarchs were not Judah. 
and they were never called Jews until the Jews themselves started insisting that they were Jews. And, and Judah's only one of how many of Abraham's great-grandchildren? <laughs> and I'm not legitimizing the claims of the Arabs. The Arabs are liars. They're, they're liars worse than the Jews are. And Islam is basically a religion invented by Jews. And that can be proven. I'm not giving them any credence or, or any legitimacy. But Abraham had many great-grandsons. And only Jacob Israel was the heir to the promises. That's why you don't see any of the others mentioned, hardly, in, in, in the New Testament, because they don't matter. They were pushed aside. They were cast out for the sake of the children of Israel. But even with that, the Jews are not the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes are not the Jews. At least nine of the 12 tribes, and most of two others, were never called after the name of Judah and could not possibly be called Jews. None of them were ever called Jews until modern times, but that label could never be honestly and properly applied to most of them. Only a deceiver would want to go back in history and change someone's identity so that he could commit his own identity theft. That's what the Jews have done. They've changed the identity of the patriarchs in the minds of these unsuspecting Christians so that they could attempt to commit identity theft and act under a false name, giving them a legitimacy that they don't have giving them a sense of authority that they never had. That's what's going on in the religious world of today. And the political world has followed the religious world. Yeah, if you just um, Google the Exodus, the first thing you'll see is uh, Moses led the Jews out of um, Egypt, right? You can see it's just everywhere. Everywhere's completely cucked to them. Well, well, right, but that's because Jews have been telling Christians how to understand Christianity for a thousand years now, and probably longer than that, probably for 1,700 years since those early replacement theologians among the so-called church fathers in, and, and the formation of the Roman Catholic Church, which was founded on false premises, on many false premises. It was not apostolic Christianity. The name Jew is an abbreviated form of the name Judea. And Judea, or more properly in Greek, Eudahia, was the Greek name for the society of the people in Jerusalem in the Hellenistic period. While it came from Judah, and while the land of Judah is sometimes translated in the Septuagint as Eudahia, Judea being the form, Judea being from the modern anglicized version of the Latin equivalent, Judah and Judea are not one and the same. Judah being left only sparsely populated after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of his people, only 42,000 people returned with Zerubbabel in 520 B.C., 
and a few thousand more with Ezra a few decades later. Those people initially settled only in and around Jerusalem and Galilee. After about 350 years, they grew into a formidable nation. And ultimately, having gained their independence by defeating the Seleucid Greeks, the Greek rulers of Syria, they came to subjugate many of the surrounding people, which was also their ultimate undoing because they forced those surrounding people, mostly Edomites and Canaanites, to adopt and conform to Judaism. And we've already explained this in this, in, in this series of presentations. While this is explained in detail in Book 13 of the Antiquities of the Judeans by Flavius Josephus, here I am going to quote from Book 16 from Chapter 2 of Strabo, Strabo of Cappadocia's Geography. And Strabo wrote, We set down as parts of Syria, beginning at Calicia and Mount Amanus, both Comagene and the Seleucus of Syria, as the later is called, and then Cole Syria, or Coele Syria, or Coele Syria, and last on the seaboard, Phoenicia, and in the interior, Judea. <clears throat> Some writers divide Syria as a whole into Coelho-Syrians and Syrians and Phoenicians and say that four other tribes are mixed up with these, namely Judeans, Edomians or Edomites, Gazaeans, and Azotians, and that they are partly farmers, as the Syrians and Coelho-Syrians, and partly merchants, as the Phoenicians. Now, the reference to Phoenicians here is merely a reference to the inhabitants of what was once Phoenicia. And most of the original Phoenicians, which were the Israelites, were taken off in the Assyrian captivity several hundred years before. Coelho Syria, the prefix comes from a Greek word which means hollow. Coelho Syria was actually the Greek name for a swath of land north of Judea, extending from the Lebanon Mountains northwest to include Damascus and much of modern Syria as far as the Euphrates River. In Palestine, Judea was situated to the south and west of Coelho Syria. So perhaps there Strabo was referring to Judeans who remained near Babylonian Babylonia after the captivity, but who never returned to Jerusalem. And here he attests that they were also mingled with Edomites and other races. Then further on in the same chapter of geography, he wrote, As for Judea, its western extremities towards Cassius are occupied by the Edomians and by the lake. The Edomians are Nabataeans, but owing to a sedition, they were banished from there, joined the Judeans, and shared in the same customs with them. 
actually the Edomites and the Nabataeans, who were originally Ishmaelites, dwelt in proximity of one another and intermarried. They intermingled until the Edomites had migrated northwards in the aftermath of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities of Judah, most of Judah having been left vacant. And this testimony of Strabo encapsulates a much broader narrative found in Josephus' Antiquities, where Josephus, being an insider, supplied much more historic detail. Nevertheless, Strabo tells us that both in Syria and in Judea, the Judeans are mixed up with the Edomites and with the other people that the Greeks basically described using geographical terms, not national ones, because Gaza and Gazians and Azodians and Phoenicians and Syrians and Coelho Syrians, they are all geographical terms. None of them are tribal identifications. Where Judeans was originally a tribal gener a tribal identification, but by this time it became a geographical term. And Edomian was also a tribal identification. So we see that the tribes within these areas are Judeans and Edomites. And there are others, the tribes of the Canaanites, that were never taken off in Assyrian captivity, and other Israelites even, because a lot of those Phoenicians that were left behind were Israelites, and a lot of them were that, that occupied the land later in a Hellenistic period were Canaanites. So this land is all mixed up, and Strabo's telling us that Judea is occupied by both Edomites and Judeans. So Josephus' Antiquities tells the same story, but with much more historic detail from the vantage point of a Judean and not of a Cappadocian. Strabo is an outsider. He's trying to explain all these places, to describe all these places to Greek readers. The Edomites and other Canaanite tribes coming to inhabit much of the former land of Judah and Israel after the captivities once the Hasmoneans, who were called the Maccabees, had gained their independence from the Greeks, they began trying to drive out all of these other tribes from the former lands of Judah and Israel. But after failing to accomplish that for several decades, they instead began converting them and pressured all of them to convert so that there could be peace. Then, several decades later, when the Romans had come, the, the process of converting these peoples began with John Hyrcanus, probably about 125 BC. It ended with Alexander Janius, who continued the program. And Alexander Janius, he was king until about 78 BC, I believe. I could be off a couple of years. So the Romans came around 65 to 63 BC, and they conquered Jerusalem. And the Romans drew up the lines for a kingdom, which they rewarded to Herod the Edomite. They made him the king, and it kept the name Judea.
But it was not truly Judah. Herod the Edomite was one of those converted Judeans. But it was not truly Judah. And most of the inhabitants were not of Judah, regardless of their religion. Yet, as they converted to Judaism, and as they lived in the Roman province of Judea, from that time on, they were always known as Judeans, regardless of their race. In Jerusalem, after the Edomite Herod became king, which office he had for over 30 years, and his sons succeeded him in the government for several generations after him, the Edomites became established in all of the areas of authority over the people, and especially in the priesthood, especially in the office of high priest. So with all of this, if Christ had said to his opponents, as he said in John chapter 10, but you believe not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. And if he later warned Christians, as he did in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan, then how do we imagine that the Jews are Judah? And how could we possibly imagine at all that the Jews are Israel or that the patriarchs were Jews? If Jew or Jewry were also properly translated as Judah or Judahite in the Old Testament, and if Eudahia or Eudahios were always properly translated as Judea and as Judean in the New Testament, then perhaps we would not have gotten the ancient Israelites so easily confused with Jews, which is a lie that emanates from the Jews themselves. Yeah, it'd be so much more clearer, right, where it says those who say they are Judah but are not Judah, you'd understand, all right, they're not the tribe of Judah, but where it says Jews but they are not really Jews, it makes you think, oh, who are the real Jews then? And it's it's not meant to be uh, explained that way. It causes confusion, right? Absolutely, it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be explained that way at all. That because the Jews would would, would um, easily argue that certain of their sects are real Jews, and and different sects would probably have different arguments. But it it all sows confusion in the minds of Christians. All of it lends to so confusion. And Christians who, who don't understand the history, who, who don't understand the, the classical writers and the things that Josephus said, who don't really understand that the base words in the, in, behind the scriptures, behind the modern translations, those Christians are just going to surrender to, to the Jewish claims. And that's what we've done for 1,700 years. And did the name uh, Edomian or Edomite just fade into oblivion from then on? Yes, it did. From, from 70, well, well, from the first century AD, let's put it that way. From the first century, it faded into oblivion. And all the, where are the Edomites? They were there. That there, are, that there are multiple ancient witnesses. Um, 
the letters of Paul, the words of Christ, the testimonies of Strabo of Cappadocia, the historical descriptions that, that were presented by Flavius Josephus, all of these witnesses to the fact that the Edomites became Judeans. And that term Edomite disappears from the historical vernacular and from Christian dialogue after 70 AD. It's never an issue again after 70 AD. It was an issue to Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 9 said that they are not all Israel who are of Israel, and he goes on to describe Jacob and Esau, and to make a contrast between Jacob and Esau, and between vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction. That's exactly what Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 9, is the same thing that we just saw in Strabo of Cappadocia, that the Judeans and Edomians were mixed up in Judea. And that's why Christ is warning about fake Judeans. Judeans who are not really Judah. So they're not really Judeans. They're imposters. Political circumstances made them... Yeah, the and he's the only one who can truly tell them apart, right? We, right? we just have to rely on this gospel. Absolutely. The political circumstances of men confounded these diverse races these diverse people. And they are different races. Even though Jacob and Esau were brothers, when we go back in the scripture, we see that Rebekah's heart was troubled because of the daughters of Heth, because Esau took wives of the Canaanites. And, and the most, one of the most critical misunderstandings of word meanings in the Bible is the word world. So we should probably discuss that. And, and that's also probably going to be a lengthy discussion. It, it's based on, I, I mean, I don't think I could do it better than I did in a short essay that I wrote at Christagenia. I, I don't remember when, perhaps eight, nine, ten years ago, titled, What is the World? And, and that's probably the best I could do. So that's what we're going to present and discuss here. I don't know if you have anything you want to say before I begin. Yeah, the whole um, multicultural paradigm has completely distorted our worldview of the world, world, right? Um, it, you know, it, you've explained many times how, how the Greeks understood that um, there, were, there were different races amongst the Greeks and that always caused problems, right? And, you know, even in our history, we had English and Germans, we had different tribes, different races. And this modern view that we all are one race now, we're all, you know, happy and we need to be multicultural and all blend. That's a complete lie. And that should not be applied to the Bible 2000 years ago. They didn't think that way at all, right? They absolutely didn't think that way. And, and, and there's one thing that my paper doesn't discuss that perhaps I, I could get in here in, in a couple of digressions. Um, that's the misunderstanding that to the Greeks, the world was the whole universe. And even that didn't really, first the Greeks didn't have a world, a word for universe, right? But even that doesn't really properly explain 
the way the Greeks saw their world. Because in ancient times, men didn't have clocks, paper calendars that they could buy, and, and for the next 10 years, know the dates, and, and when the seasons start and end and, and all of that. They didn't have that, right? They didn't have clocks. They didn't have digital clocks, atomic clocks. That They had a sundial. Now, they did have a sundial, and they could tell the hours of the day from the sundial, but how do you tell the time at night? And if you don't have paper calendars where you could keep track and mark off every day as it passes and know what day it is tomorrow so that you would know what day the vernal equinox is going to be on. How do you know when to plant? And how do you know when to sail? Because the mariners relied on the night constellations to know when and where they could sail throughout the year. If you read Acts chapter 27, you'll find it was very dangerous to sail in the Mediterranean when winter was approaching. So, how did they really know when winter was approaching? Because it started getting cold out? No, because they watched the night sky. The farmers watched the night sky. The sailors watched the night sky. Their world was regulated by the stars and the planets. They knew when it was going to get cold, when it was going to be winter. They knew when to plant all by the night sky. And, and there's mentions of it throughout history, that throughout the historians, the classical historians. There are mentions of um, when the dog star rises or the passing of this constellation or that constellation. That indicated that it was a certain time of the year, so they did certain things. That These references are replete throughout the Greek and, and Roman historians, where we see how the stars and the planets were a part of their world. But the blacks in southern Africa and the yellow people in China whatever you want, if you want to call them Asians, Mongolians, doesn't matter. They were not a part of that world. So you cannot say the world was the universe. That is not the proper perspective of the world to an ancient Greek. Just because the stars, the moon, the sun, the, the planets were a part of their world, that doesn't mean the universe, as we perceive the term, was their world. Those features of God's creation were how the Greeks regulated their lives. That's why they were part of their world, because they regulated their lives by them. They, you know, if the modern society disintegrated tomorrow and we lost electricity and our cell phones and our watches didn't work any longer, And, and we're sitting out in the fields wondering what time it is, wondering when we should plant, wondering when we should hunt. And we look up at the night stars and try to imagine what season it is. We are lost. We are totally, totally lost.
Now, there might be some astronomers out there, some hobbyists that, that understand the constellations to a degree that can help us out and help us get started again. But in order to gain back that ancient knowledge that the, the ancients that they commonly held about the stars and the planets and their movements, it would take us decades of observation and, and gaining a, a general experience among our people. It would take us decades. We'd be lost for decades. We wouldn't know how to tell time unless we kept our paper calendars. And even there, we'd have problems. Okay, that's a huge digression, but that is the universe of the Greeks. That's the world of the Greeks. That's the only reason why the world can be perceived as the universe, but it can't be perceived as the universe as we know it. That's not true. It was the organization of their lives, the cosmos, the society, and the planets and stars and movements of them helped them organize their, and, and regulate their society. Three Greek words in the New Testament are commonly translated as world in English, and they are ahion, which is an eon in English, cosmos, and oikumene. And the denominational churches, wherever these words appear and are translated as world, insist that they mean the entire planet and everything or everyone on it. That was not the understanding of the ancient Greeks, and it is the meaning of these words to Greek readers in the first century, which is how Christians should understand them, the way the apostles also understood them. If you are not understanding words the way the apostles understood them, then you are following a different gospel. You are not following the gospel of Christ. The first word, ahion, or eon in English, it's Strong's number 165. That word, and all my definitions come from the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon, all of my Greek definitions, that word is a period of existence. It's one's lifetime, a life, an age, a generation, a long space of time, an age or a definite space of time, an era, epoch, age, period. So in its plural, aistus ahionas, that's for the ages. So that's interpreted as forever. And that's fair for the ages because it, it's a much longer period of time than man can conceive or, or possibly live through, right? A related word, ahionius, Strong's number 166, is lasting for an age, everlasting or eternal. Now, according to Strong's concordance, these words were rendered world 42 times in the King James Version of the New Testament, ahion and ahionis. So, these words have to do with a period of time and not a place. And as we shall see further on, 
the original meaning of the term world, was also related to a period of time and not to a place. But the general perception of the word's meaning today relates to the planet itself and not to a period of time. Rendering ahion and ahionius, which always have a temporal sense in Greek, temporal meaning related to time, rendering them as world, which today is most often perceived with a spatial sense in English related to a place, right, a space, that can create serious misconceptions in the interpretations of Scripture. And it does. The next word translated as world in the English versions is cosmos. Strong's number 2889. And that appears approximately 182 times in the New Testament. With 85% of those occurrences being in the writings of John and Paul. The related verb, cosmeo, Strong's number 2885, cosmeo, the verb, is to arrange, to order, arrange, to deck, adorn, to adorn something, to dress it up, right? To equip, to furnish, or to dress. So if the verb means to order, or to arrange, or to dress something up, or to equip something, then what does the noun mean? Or actually, cosmos is an adjective, and it's often used as a noun, as a substantive in Greek. Liddell and Scott define cosmos as order, good order, good behavior, decency, the form or fashion of a thing, of states, order, or government. I want to check myself on that description of cosmos as an adjective. No, yeah, Bill, um, cosmos noun, always I'm caused sorry. me confusion when I first heard your explanation because uh, I always believed it was related to planets and solar systems, you know, stars, the, the cosmos, that's how it's often applied, although in an order sense. But, right. but here, if the Greeks are using it, obviously, you know, obviously um, they've perverted the meaning there. Right. And, and we're going to get to even where Liddell and Scott flipped the meaning. And, and that's in part four. So part four, their definition, right? That. In, that's part one, right? The form, the order, the good behavior, decency, the fashion of something. And of states, it refers to order or government, right? And then the second definition is of cosmos. And it's a noun. I'm sorry. It's not an adjective. I'm confused. The second definition of cosmos is an ornament, a decoration, embellishment, or dress. And the third definition is a regulator. Someone who orders something, someone who puts things in order or keeps them in order. The fourth definition, world or universe from its perfect order, mankind as we use the world, New Testament. Now, their fourth definition comes from basically the New Testament. 
So, when we do that, when we take Greek definitions and add to them how we think they mean in the New Testament, that's what 16th century Englishmen thought the New Testament was saying because they had a preconceived notion of what the word meant. They had that preconceived notion from their religion. Yes, the world or universe from its perfect order. The order of things is the cosmos, but it's not relating to the planet. And to throw mankind in there, that is ridiculous. And, and to try to fit every hominid on the planet under that definition, where does it say that in ancient Greek? It's the order of things from a Greek perspective, but it's not the whole planet and everybody on it. And um, with a CI perspective, you understand what John's trying to say, that the, you know, the non-whites are, are savage, so we are the order and they are the unorder or the chaos, right? Well, I don't know if we find that in John, but, but that's basically an overall teaching of the Bible that outside of the order of God is the land of Nod or wandering. And wandering was often used as a, an allegorical term for sin. And that's where Cain was sent, to the land of Nod. Okay. The fourth definition of their word cosmos is the world or universe from its perfect order. Mankind, as we use the world, and their authority for that is the New Testament. But is that the way the apostles used the term? Did they describe it that way? No, they didn't. The whole world was the whole oikumene, as we see in Luke. The cosmos is the order of the oikumene. And, and we will see that shortly. First, <clears throat> Of the words, the other words translated world in the King James Version. Ahion and Ahionius are literally age and lasting for an age. They are temporal and not spatial terms. And that in itself may give further insight into the flexibility of the definition of world in the King James Version translators' minds, especially once the original meaning of the word itself is examined. But second, there's another word translated world that does indeed explicitly refer to a geographic area, and that is oikumene. Once we understand what oikumene means, then perhaps we can perceive cosmos as the Greeks did. Because that last definition from Liddell and Scott deserves further scrutiny because they are only showing how the various New Testament translators and commentators perceive the term's meaning, but that's not necessarily how the apostles perceived it. Liddell and Scott define oikumene, which appears in the New Testament perhaps 15 times, as the inhabited world, a term used to designate the Greek world as opposed to barbarian lands.
So in Roman times, the Roman world. Now Strabo, the geographer, who died in 25 AD or thereabouts. <clears throat> 25 AD is um, three or four years before Christ began his ministry. So Strabo wrote not long before Paul. He described the Oikumene in his 17 book geography. It included practically all of the lands inhabited by the white races. And not only the Romans, but the Parthians, the Scythians, and others of Asia, and all of northern Africa. Diodorus Siculus, writing about 40 BC, almost 100 years before the Passion of Christ, referred to the lands about India as the limits of the inhabited world in his Library of History, in Book 1, Chapter 19. This was the Oikumene, the physical world which the race of Adam inhabited, Deuteronomy 32.8, Acts 17.26, the physical world, in spite of the fact that Strabo and Diodorus and others knew very well of lands which were inhabited by alien tribes, both in Africa to the south and to the east of India, which were not considered by them to be a part of the Oikumene. And if they were not a part of the Oikumene, they could not be included in any perception of the cosmos because they were not part of the order of the Greek society. It should be quite evident that if the Oikumene was the portion of the physical world inhabited by Adamic man, and that's the way the word is used in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, where Caesar taxed the whole world, all of the Roman world that was under his authority to tax. The cosmos, if the Oikumene was the physical world inhabited by the Adamic man, by the, Roman, by the Romans and Greeks, then the cosmos describes the order, the decorum, and the arrangement of the Oikumene. While the Oikumene was the physical world, the cosmos was its society and its embellishment. Of course, the heavenly bodies were considered by the Greeks and Romans to be only another part of that embellishment. And it was much more a part of their world than we perceive them to be of our world today. Because today we're disconnected, as I explained. We're disconnected from the stars and, and, and the movements of the planets. We have different ways to keep times and seasons. We have digital watches and, and cell phones. And, and I even keep time by my cell phone. It changes itself. It, when, when the time changes, I never have to change it. it it's, it's a modern convenience which has me totally disconnected from the planets and stars as they cross the sky or from the sun as it crosses the sky during the day. I don't need a sundial. I have a cell phone. That's the way life is today. So we have a simplistic notion of how the Greeks and Romans describe these things and, and how they use these terms because we don't use those terms that way today. 
So this is certainly a far departure from the universalist theologian's view of the world as the planet and everyone in it, which is surely not an accurate view when it is compared with the ancient texts. Yet by necessity, in the biblical context, I must understand the word to refer to the society in the sense of the Adamic society. And that's how I've translated it in the Christogenian New Testament in most of the places where the word cosmos appears. It is even apparent that the way in which the King James Version translators understood the word world is itself quite different than how we understand it today. If we investigate the word world in the third edition of the American Heritage College Dictionary, we find that it, it is derived from an old and middle English word, <clears throat> weorald, W-E-O-R-O-L-D, weorald. Weorald is eventually shortened to world, right? And to understand weorald, we are referred to an entry for a supposedly Proto-Indo-European word, word wiro, W-I-R-O, in their appendix of Indo-European roots. When we check the entry in that appendix for wiro, we find that the word world comes from the Germanic word were, which is akin to the Latin vir, because that Germanic word may have been pronounced ver, and the Latin vir means man. The Germanic word ver or ver means man. In ancient times, for a slave or for somebody who is indentured, they, they had a word called wergild or vergild, W-I-R-G-I-L-D, and that was the payment for a man. That was compensation paid by a person who committed an offense. The Virgild was paid to the injured party in order to compensate for the price of a man in, in case of, an, of a homicide or, or something like that or, or a damage to a man that was unjust, you would have to pay that. Vergild, W-E-R, is that word for man. <clears throat> so, world, or world, that first part of it means man. And the Germanic word ald is a life or an age. And that's the word that we get our English word from which we get our English word old. There's another expression of that word, um, ald, in the Scottish, in that, that famous um, song that's sung on New Year's Eve every year called Auld Lang Syne. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but Auld Lang Syne translates to good old time, I believe, and that old is from that word ald. So it's old in English, it was old in Germanic, and ver-ald is where we get the word world.
put ver and alt together, and we have world, and that means the age of man. Therefore, originally, the word world, and this is the point I'm driving at, the word world is a temporal term and not a spatial term. It means to refer to our Adamic age, and it does not mean to refer to everyone and everything on the planet, and it does not describe the planet itself, not in 1611. Our confusion over the meaning of this word has led us into total confusion when attempting to understand our own literature, especially our Bibles. The world is not the planet and all that it contains. It's not the planet and everyone who lives on it, not even in English, and certainly not in our Bibles. I'm going to quote Martin Luther in chapter 13 of his treatise on the Jews and their lies. And he uses the word, translated into English, the word equivalent to world to describe only what could have been the white European world. When he said, it is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing. Now, this is 1543. It is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world accepted without sword or coercion with no temporal benefits accruing to them. In other words, no bribes, like the Roman Catholics were either coercing or bribing the savages of South America to accept Christianity, to accept Roman Catholicism, I should say. That was going on as Martin Luther was writing this. But Martin Luther said that the Gentiles in all the world accepted, past tense, without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them, gladly and freely, a poor man of the Jews. And there it is, that unfortunate understanding that Jesus was a Jew. It should have said a poor man of the Judeans as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. So Martin Luther had that Judeo-Christian view of Christ and his relation to Judea, not understanding that half those people were Edomites and that most of the rulers were Edomites. Luther didn't understand that because Luther, if you read Luther, he got a lot of his understanding about Christianity from Jews. And he admits it. He gives his sources, and when the sources are investigated, we find that most of them are converso Jews that were prominent Bible commentators in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. But in spite of that, Luther still understood that the whole world, all the Gentiles, had already accepted Christ. And when you go back to 1543 and look at the whole world that accepted Christ freely, with no temporal benefits, voluntarily, then you'll find only white nations. 
and that was the whole world to Martin Luther in 1543. The world in scripture is the age of Adamic man. It's the order of our Christian society, and it should be nothing else because it is only the white Adamic nations, which Yahweh, our God, concerned himself with throughout our Bibles as evidenced in Genesis chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, throughout the Revelation, and in many other places. But even more precisely, we see the children of Israel alone are the world of the scriptures, where we read in the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18, for in the long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the fathers graven or inscribed, right? And thy majesty meaning the majesty of God, upon the diadem of his head. This is a reference to the high priest and the four rows of stones on his breastplate. And in other words, the world of the Bible is only the world of the children of Israel as they were to become many nations. And as it says in reference to God in Isaiah chapter 28, he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That is the world of Israel. That is the world of the Bible, the world of the Romans, the Adamic oikumene, the Greco-Roman world, its society, its decorum, its order, and that included the heavenly bodies. That's the world of Scripture. But it doesn't include Chinamen, or, or black Africans, or Filipinos, or Latin American indigenous creatures. It doesn't include them. No squat monsters. There weren't any squat monsters. There were a couple of exceptions. You had mulatto races in Egypt and, and in the south of Arabia because of the slave trade with the blacks at a very early time and the Nubian invasions of Egypt and Ethiopia. So there were a couple of exceptions, but they were outliers. They weren't really a part of the world of the apostles or of the Romans. Yeah, and just a practical view on the world wherever... Um, our people have went that that's where you get this society this okumene right there was nothing in north africa until the europeans came and the same in south america um africa australia new zealand you know wherever we go we build the civilization and, and before that there's nothing just the barren shell uh you know you know perhaps um you know some animals in some kind of um you know, an animal civilization, but apart from that, there's there's nothing until we come. These other races never build anything, and that's proven, uh, you know, throughout all history, right? Well, well, right, but there's a lot of confusion in that area, and and our enemies, the Jews, that they exploit confusion over the, the history of those areas in order to force us to accept what we can only call universalism, this idea that all races of people on the planet belong as a part of our society is 
an antichrist idea that that is the <clears throat> the manifestation of mystery babylon go back to babel all the nations were of one tongue and one language that that was the the, the sin of man to imagine that they could reach the stars tell me how we're not doing that today we're not tell me how we're not repeating genesis chapter 11 today and it displeased god in genesis chapter 11 and today it's displeasing him much more because the consequences are far graver than they were in ancient mesopotamia in genesis chapter 11. so that being said the other races were not even a part of non-white races were not even a part of ancient society except that you had the the nephilim the fallen angels the mixed people in, in um mesopotamia and they also migrated to other places and were probably found canaanites i'm sure were found among greeks and romans just like they're found among european nations today people don't sit still and and the jews who are naturally merchants who who gravitate to merchant trades are no different than the ancient canaanites who who also gravitated to those same vocations in in fact in zechariah in one place in the prophecy of zechariah i believe it is the words canaanite and merchant the, the hebrew word rakal is merchant but canaanite is used as a synonym for merchant so it, it's well known that that particular race of people that that they've they're not the only merchants in the world i mean adamic people can be merchants too but they have gravitated towards the mercantile trades and that has distributed them throughout our adamic world that that's a phenomenon that's as old as time so i'm slightly i, I think i took too many digressions and and it's difficult to get back to my original point but these other races where they did invade white lands ancient ethiopia was actually white at one time egypt was actually white at one time and had a presence in the roman empire that doesn't give them by itself legitimacy as part of the roman world the romans dealt with them and the the when the romans came to egypt the macedonian greeks who were white had already been there reclaiming ancient egyptian history for their race and that's because they understood if you read diodorus siculus and his his accounts of early history diodorus siculus understood that the original egyptians the original ethiopians were at one time synonymous or, or or homogenous in culture and beliefs with assyrians and greeks and romans yet diodorus siculus described the black ethiopians who he did not consider human he said they were far removed from human civility and and we've already presented that citation here so just because these other races come into contact with our race and and but because they are eventually 
accepted, that doesn't make it legitimate in the eyes of God that they're a part of our world. They're invaders into our world. So when we started, and this is my original point why I got on this digression, because of what you had said about that these other races, wherever we go, when we started the colonial period, in some places where they opposed us, we exterminated or pushed out of the way other races. And that's because we found the natives to be treacherous against us. That's the case in North America. That's the case in, in, to some degree in South America. But eventually, when we were strong enough in numbers that we dominated the native savages, we turned to be kind to them and to accept them even at, as possible partners in our own society. That was the downfall of Spanish and Portuguese Latin America and, and that's why they're not really Spanish or Portuguese any longer, except for some names and some language. That they, they are nothing like the original Spaniards and Portuguese. And that is a, a detriment and, and a dividing point in North America today. That's, and, and in New Zealand and Australia and everywhere else that we settled and took these savages that we found there and tried to domesticate them. That today they are domesticated for, to a degree and there are enemies in our own societies. So today we see the Jew, we see Satan in the background and, and he's taking advantage of that very, very situation to raise those beasts above us. But it's us, it, it's white Europeans who, who are the the, the cosmos, who are the society, who created it. I don't know if that was succinct enough, but that's my, that, that's my point, just elaborating on what you had said about wherever we go. No, we should have pushed them all out of the way. We shouldn't have even tried to And those Canaanites follow us wherever we go, right? Well, right. We have too much empathy and altruism as a race to think that we could have these other races as part of our cosmos, but it wasn't that way at the beginning. Martin Luther, he already said that all of the Gentiles already accepted Christ. So what's his idea of a Gentile, a white European nation? It has to be because at Martin Luther's time in 1543, there really weren't any non-white Christian nations. There was only the Roman Catholic church trying to force non-white tribes to be Christians or to be Catholics and, and the Jesuits working amongst and, and other sects working amongst Muslims to try to convert them. Martin Luther King knew of the Muslims. He never, he didn't with that statement, he clearly did not consider Muslims to be either Gentiles or, or of course, part of his world, or he couldn't have wrote those words, but he wrote those words as he knew that the that there were Germanic and, and the Poles in, in Eastern Europe fighting the Turks as he wrote. And he discussed that in other places. He mentioned that in other places. But he didn't consider those Turks Gentiles, and he didn't consider them part of his world because he said the whole world already converted to Christ. 
So the way we use language today, the way we understand these terms, generation, world, nation, we are so dumb in accepting these modern meanings and projecting our modern meanings onto the, the scriptures when the writers of scriptures did not interpret those words or, or have the, an, any conception that they had those meanings. Those words don't have those meanings. They don't in Scripture. You cannot force your perception of what a world is onto John when he wrote um, one of the Greek equivalents or one of the Greek words that are later translated as world, cosmos, oikumene, or ahion. Ahion is an eon. When John wrote Eon or Cosmos or Oikumene, he meant something completely different than what you mean today out in society when you use the term world. That's not what John meant by any of those terms. That is so important to understand if you think you want to understand the Bible. So you'll look up a modern Bible dictionary. What's an Ahion? Oh, it's a world. That's the way the King James translated it. It must be true. What's an oikumene? Oh, it's the world. That's the way the King James translated it. It must be true. What's a cosmos? Oh, it's a world. Why did they have three different words? <laughs> Why did they pick those words? None of them are a world. Not one. The way we understand world. I could, I, I could ramble on forever with this. I'm sorry. I think we should wait till our next presentation to discuss the next group of words that, that's important to discuss, and that's the, the Hebrew terms Adam, Enosh, and Mamzer, man, men, and bastards. Yeah, that, sure, that's fine. It, it becomes clearer and clearer that the Jews have gradually been, quote-unquote, modernized in dictionaries and erasing old meanings bit by bit. Absolutely, but it's the old meanings that it, it, it it's the old meanings that matter because that that when, when the apostles wrote these terms, they did not bear the significance that they have in twentieth century Europe or in twentieth century America. Well, thank you for joining us. Praise Yahweh. No worries. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. And in the end, there won't be any squat monsters in our world or Jews. <laughs> Praise Christ. Thank you. Good night.